0: So so the, the New Testament begins with four biographies of Jesus that we know as the Gospels, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's an amazing story in Mark's biography of Jesus. He he describes this time where Jesus and some of his friends were leaving a city and there you know there's crowds of people wherever Jesus went. And there's a blind man named Bartimaeus in the crowd, and he hears that Jesus is coming, and, and he wants to meet him, so he's calling out. He's calling out for Jesus, trying to get his attention, and you know, the people in the crowd are trying to shush him, you know, like, hey, just be quiet. But he just keeps crying out louder and louder, like, Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears his voice through the crowd, and, and he stops, and he, he kind of motions. He says, hey, bring him, bring him over here. So they bring Bartimaeus to him, and Jesus asks a really simple but really, really profound question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you, Bartimaeus? What, what is it you, you need? What are you, what are you hoping for? And Bartimaeus says, well, Rabbi, I want to see. To which Jesus replies, go. Your faith has healed you. And the text says that immediately he received his sight and he began to follow Jesus. And, and I love that question that Jesus asked. What do you want me to do for you? See, for 2,000 years, people have been coming close to Jesus because they sense that he has something unique to offer them. Uh, back then, you know, for people like Bartimaeus, some of them, they were, they were sick, they had physical ailments, and they'd heard that Jesus could heal them, so they drew close. But a lot of people back then and a lot of people today draw close to Jesus because they've got other things going on. They've got deeper questions that they're asking. They, they look at this life And they wonder if, you know, maybe there couldn't be something more to it. You know, more purpose, more meaning, more direction, more whatever that is. I think like many of us today, uh, people back then went to Jesus because as a teacher, he was really answering the key questions of their heart. And they wanted to hear what he had to say well this morning i want you to keep that question that bartimaeus asked in mind because we're going to come back to that in a few minutes but we're kicking off an extended teaching series where we're going to be looking at the most famous teaching that jesus ever gave uh, it's called the sermon on the mount and it takes up three chapters in matthew's biography of jesus chapters 5 6 and 7. and, and what we read in this text like it is universally regarded as probably the single most important ethical teaching in human history And it's not just something that that people of the Christian faith value. People from all sorts of faith backgrounds and no faith background, they look at this as an incredibly important text. So people as diverse as Thomas Jefferson and Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. all looked to this text and found in it real wisdom and power for living. So for the next three months, what we're going to do is we're going to dig really deeply into these three chapters. And we're going to see how the words of Jesus challenge us and encourage us and also work to answer some of the questions that we're asking today. And to get started, we're actually going to begin at at the beginning with the opening lines of the sermon. So it's found in Matthew chapter 5, and I'd love to invite you to turn with me in the Bible to that passage. Uh, If it would help you for any reason, there are some red Bibles in those seats in front of you. You can grab one of those and turn to the page number that's there on the screen. Um, But as you're turning there, for those of you I haven't had an opportunity to meet before, my name is Mike King. And as the senior pastor here at Suburban, I get the privilege of leading really an amazing team of volunteers and staff members who make everything that we do here at the church possible. And if you're here joining us in person or online, we just want you to know we're really grateful that you're here. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm really excited about this series. I've been, I've been kind of building up a head of steam on this for a little while as I've been studying. And I really think it's going to be helpful no matter where you may be in your own faith journey. So maybe, maybe you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Right, you're here because somebody invited you, or you're, you're interested in exploring the claims of Christ and trying to learn a little bit more about him. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is a fantastic place to start because in its words, you get a really clear picture of who Jesus is and, and what it is that he was all about. And for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, I think really focusing in on the Sermon on the Mount uh, will help deepen our understanding of Jesus. It, it may find ourselves challenged in new ways to, to follow him more faithfully or in different ways. Um, So to get into this, to lay the groundwork for the Sermon on the Mount, we actually need to look at a a short passage that takes place near the end of Jesus' life. So the Sermon on the Mount was probably preached, you know, like two or three years before the passage we're looking at here. This passage takes place on the night when Jesus was arrested. So when Jesus was arrested, the the Jewish religious authorities, they uh, they really wanted to see him killed. So they arrested him, and they brought him to a man named Pilate. Who was the roman governor of the region and they brought him for a very specific reason so at this time israel was part of the broader roman empire and the the local jewish authorities they didn't have the power to have somebody executed that was something the romans reserved for themselves but they were done with jesus so they brought jesus to pilate the roman governor who was in charge of the region and they said hey we think he needs to be executed and they they brought a charge against jesus that they knew would get pilate's attention they said this guy says he is the true king of the Jews. And now again, remember you can see how this, this language would have been a problem for the Romans, because the Romans is a big empire and they had rebellions and uprisings at different times. So they got really, really nervous when a charismatic leader was able to draw a crowd like Jesus, and they started talking about building a new kingdom, right? They started thinking, oh, this is not going to end well, and they usually had that person killed. So the fact that the Jewish leaders bring this term up, it, it means that Pilate really has to take this seriously, and he has to investigate this. So he sits down with Jesus, and he just straight up asks him. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Right? He's asking, is what the religious leader is saying, is, is it true? Right? Are, are you creating a new kingdom? Are you setting yourself up against Rome in this way? And then look at how Jesus replies, because it's not what Pilate expected, and it's maybe not what you would expect either. He doesn't say no. (laughs) Instead, he just says, well, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. So in other words, he's saying, like, yeah, I'm a king, but not in the way you would normally think of, like with kingdom here on earth, with an army backing me up. It's, it's a whole different kind of kingdom. It really doesn't have anything to do with this world and the way you tend to think about that. So the Jewish leaders, they latch onto this kingdom language, and they use it as leverage to get Jesus killed. And they start to really pressure Pilate, you've got to do something about this. Because remember, Pilate is appointed by the emperor, so he serves at his pleasure, and he doesn't want to lose his job, and he knows, okay, well, if word gets back to Caesar that I'm going easy on people who claim to be kings, that's not going to go well for me. So he ends up ordering Jesus' death, and Jesus is executed on a Roman cross, charged with claiming to be the true king of the Jews. Okay, so what does all of this that happens at the end of Jesus' life, what does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it turns out we cannot understand the Sermon on the Mount if we don't spend a little bit of time understanding what it is that Jesus meant when he said that his kingdom wasn't of this world. That little comment, because when he threw that out, Pilate wasn't really sure what he's talking about. But at that point, Jesus's followers would have had a pretty clear idea of what he was talking about, because for about two or three years, Jesus had been teaching and talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, it turns out, is the central theme of the teaching ministry of Jesus. So you can't understand anything that he did or said if you don't have a sense of what he meant by that. Um, So let me show you how that idea, for example, how it shows up in the Sermon on the Mount, the passage we're going to look at. So the Sermon on the Mount starts at the beginning of chapter 5, but there's some stuff that comes before that. So it's good to look at the last few verses of chapter 4 and see how Matthew sets the stage. So near the end of chapter 4, we read this. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, the northern part of Israel, He was teaching in their synagogues, and he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And along with that, he was healing every disease and sickness among the people. So news about him spread all over Syria, and people were brought to him ill with all sorts of diseases, suffering pain, demon-possessed, having seizures, the paralyzed, and Jesus healed him. And large crowds from all of these different places began to follow him. So, again, the the time when Jesus is about to preach the Sermon on the Mount, for some time he's been traveling around Galilee, the northern part of Israel, and he's been doing some pretty miraculous things. He's been healing people, right? Just like he, he healed Bartimaeus, right? And when word gets out that there's this teacher who can give people their sight back, well, people want to see that happen for themselves. So crowds start gathering. They start coming around him. And it says that when Jesus had these crowds, he used that as an opportunity to proclaim the news of the kingdom. Right, to tell them that that in him, in his life, and what he was doing, God's kingdom was coming into the world, into the earth in a new way. Now, let's stop and think about that for just a minute, what that means. Because the the whole kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, or the kingdom of God, as other New Testament authors say, that is a very foreign concept to us as twenty first century Americans, right? I mean, we don't have a king. Like you think about like England. You know, they have a king, and they had a queen, and even whenever the news was on about that, it was like, man, those silly British people. I can't believe they got it. Like, who even needs a king anymore, right? Like, we have people we vote for, and there's checks and balances. It's just a whole different system here. But in a kingdom, especially in an ancient kingdom, what you need to know is that what the king said went, right? The king's word was law. If he said jump, everybody else said how high And basically, that's what's going on with with this kingdom language that Matthew is using. So there's a a great Christian scholar, a guy named Dallas Willard, who defines the kingdom of God this way. He said, the kingdom is the, the range of God's effective will. In other words, the kingdom of God, it happens wherever God's will gets done in God's way. Like the kingdom of heaven is taking place wherever what God wants starts happening and becomes a reality in the way that God wants that to happen. So when you think about what that means for humanity, the kingdom of God is present when God's desire for life and for human flourishing are the norm, when they are the law of the land. And this news that Jesus is announcing that that the kingdom is coming, that would have been really great news to people in first first century Israel. Because they would have understood that as an answer to a promise that God had made a long time ago, right? God had promised that one day his his kingdom, his rule, his reign was going to break onto the earth in a new way, that this figure, the Messiah was going to come who was going to usher this kingdom in. So for the people of Israel, they're looking forward to this day. Because again, they're not, they've got a king right now. It's Caesar in Rome and they're not particularly crazy about him. So the news that God was coming back to be king, that, that his rule was coming, that was something they were really looking forward to. Um, but here's the thing. Even though they were looking forward to it, they had lots of different opinions about what it would look like when it came. So you know those like man on the street interviews that Jimmy Kimmel and people like that do? Where they just go, so okay, so imagine that's going on in the first century. And there's this man on the street interview. They stop and they're like, let's just ask people, what's it going to look like when God's kingdom comes? Well, there would have been a whole bunch of different responses to that people had different ideas about what it would look like so just a couple of examples of that right one of the views of what it would look like for god's kingdom to come was the sadducees right they were a group of jewish leaders and they were the kind of the, the compromise with rome crowd the go along to get along crowd they were like okay well god's kingdom can come when we we just tell the romans look you guys are in charge of the the government stuff but we're in charge of our religious life and our worship life and all of that, and, and that's what it's going to look like when God's kingdom comes. We'll get to do what we want to with the temple and sacrifices, and they won't bother us with that. So there's sort of the compromise, go along, to get along approach. And then at the other extreme, right, you would have the zealots, which was a group of people who literally, they were, they were training for war. They were gathering weapons. Their view, God's kingdom was going to come when every Roman in the land was dead, right? So as soon as they're dead, then the Jewish people can rule themselves. That's what it's going to look like for God's kingdom to come. So there's lots of different approaches to what that would look like. But do you remember what what Jesus said to Pilate? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. So really, he's saying all these different ideas that people have in the world of what it looks like for the kingdom to come, like the Sadducees and the Zealots, they're they're missing the mark. Like Jesus is saying that in him, God's kingdom was come. His, His power and his love and his rule were breaking into the world in a new way, in a fresh way, in a way that was really different than what people imagined. And honestly, that is one of the reasons, I think, why there are so many stories in the Gospels, these biographies of Jesus, where Jesus heals people. It's because every time he healed someone, it was like a little outpost of the kingdom popped up in the middle of our world. There was a little place where God's will and his desire for human flourishing took place in that person's life. It was a little mini example of what it would look like for God's kingdom to come on a bigger scale. So all of that, this idea of God's kingdom and what that means, like, keep that in mind, And then we're gonna jump into the Sermon on the Mount that that starts at the beginning of chapter five. So chapter five, verse one, says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So again, Jesus sees there's this big crowd that's following him, a crowd that he knows has very diverse opinions about what it's gonna look like for God's kingdom to come. So he goes up on a mountainside and he begins to teach. And what follows over the next three chapters is one of the most remarkable things that has ever been said in human history. Like really, in the course of a a little over 100 verses, Jesus paints this amazing and compelling picture of what life in God's kingdom looks like. And it is a picture that has really transformed the world over the last 2,000 years. So remember though, Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. So when you think about the, the way that our culture, what they value and what they think the good life is and what that's gonna look like, like Jesus' kingdom picture of the good life, it's going to be different than what our world would say. So when you read in the Sermon on the Mount, you, you read these snapshots of what life in the kingdom should look like, and they do challenge a lot of the values of our world. So all of these, these are just quotes from different parts of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus says, in the kingdom, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He says, don't resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, go ahead and turn them the other cheek as well. He says, I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. He goes on to challenge some real American consumeristic values too, right? He says you can't serve both God and money. He says don't worry about tomorrow. Don't judge or you too will be judged. And then he puts in his version of the golden rule. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, even if you're not a church-going person, just because you grew up in this world, some of this language may sound familiar. You've probably heard the expression, turn the other cheek before, or you know the golden rule. And again, those are things that that grow out of this incredibly important ethical teaching that Jesus gave, this teaching really has shaped the world for the last 2,000 years. Um, And some of this you read, and it's inspiring and encouraging, and some of it you read, and it's really challenging. And you can see how some of the things that Jesus says in the sermon, they would have really pushed against the the, the kingdom definitions of groups like the Sadducees and the Zealots. So for example, the Sadducees would have been particularly offended at the part of the sermon where Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, right? Blessed are those who don't compromise. Blessed are those who don't choose the go along to get along route, right? It really goes against the central thing. And the Zealots would not have been very excited when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, because they didn't want to make peace. They wanted to make Roman corpses. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not how it works in my kingdom. You see, when Jesus described what God's kingdom looked like, inevitably he pushed up against some of the values of the people listening to him. And he still does that today because Jesus did not come to endorse the values of the culture of the people he was talking to jesus came to challenge every aspect of every culture that doesn't line up with god's values and replace them with the values of god's kingdom which is why jesus's words back then were so disruptive and it's why jesus's words are still disruptive to us today if we really listen to them i mean stop and think about how these words push against some of the broader messages in our culture so imagine uh you work for a company and you're on the search committee for that company they're hiring a new ceo and they put you in charge of that like you're in charge so you start interviewing people so they bring a candidate in and you're like oh, okay well why tell us why you're CEO material right why should we hire you and they start to talk and they say well I am incredibly meek um, I always try to turn the other cheek I love my enemies I pray for those who persecute me and you would probably be sitting there thinking like that is really sweet but that's naive like that's not how it works in this world you're not CEO material right and because that just goes against some of the values that we have But Jesus says that this is what the real world should look like because that's what God's kingdom looks like. What we have in the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of what it looks like for people to live, to truly live under the rule and reign of God, right? In the first century, there were all sorts of competing visions about what it would look like when the kingdom would come, and Jesus, in these 100 verses, just kind of sweeps them all to the side, says, let me tell you how it's really going to be which is why these words still challenge us today, right? Because they push up against some of the values that we import from our culture. Uh, You know, and sometimes people look at the Sermon on the Mount and they think it's like a a list of requirements to get into heaven. Like, I gotta do all of these things to check things off the list and, and enter in. But don't fall into the trap of thinking about the sermon that way. Instead, what you need to do when you read through the sermon, you need to remember that in this sermon, Jesus is inviting people into a whole new way of living. It is a whole new way of being, right, that will result in their flourishing and result in human flourishing in the world. And all of Jesus' life and his teachings, all the New Testament also reminds us that we can only do that, we can only accept and live into that invitation as we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And I love the way that scripture works. A uh, guy named Eugene Peterson talks about how, how the Bible works, and he says it this way. We actually put this quote in your bulletin if you want to keep it with you. He says, the Bible doesn't present us a moral code and basically say, good luck living up to that, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, as long as you believe the right things and think well, then you'll be good. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story, and in the telling, invite. Live into this this is what it looks like to be human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. See, the the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks, this is the reality that Jesus makes possible for everyone, for each of us today, right? His spirit gives us the power we need to actually live into this picture of what it means to truly be human in a God-made and God-ruled world. So here's where we're going over the next few months, right? If if we want to follow Jesus faithfully, we need to listen to what he's saying here. So again, if you're here or you're online, if you're new to all of this, the Sermon on the Mount is a fantastic place to start because it gives you a picture of who Jesus is and the life he wants. And if you're someone who's followed Jesus for a while and you're coming because you wanna be challenged to go deeper, you will find challenge in every single line of the sermon. Some of it may be a little bit more challenged than you want. Right? But for the next three months, we're going to walk through this and, and try to hear these words the way his original disciples would have, and then just invite the Holy Spirit to help us know what we're supposed to do with that. So what I want to do now is, is circle back to where we started. So we began with that story about Bartimaeus, and he comes and Jesus asks him a really simple question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Well, I believe that Jesus is still asking that question to all of us today. So what I want to invite you to do is to stop and take some time this week to really ask that question for yourself. And in fact, I would encourage you, use, use your imagination, right? God gave you that for a reason. So imagine you are in that story. Imagine you are in the place of Bartimaeus, and maybe there's a crowd of people, and you're trying to get Jesus' attention. He seems busy, but he hears you. He hears you calling out to him. And he comes, and you're face-to-face with Jesus. You have his undivided attention, and he looks at you, and he really wants to know the answer to the question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you over the next few weeks as we study this foundational text together? Like, what, what does your heart tell you that you need? Again, maybe you're new to this, and what you need is just to hear a little bit about Jesus for the first time. Maybe what you need is an encouragement and a challenge to go deeper this year as you follow him. But I absolutely believe that Jesus can meet you in your point of need, that he wants to, that he has has something that he can give to each of us. So my hope is that as we go through this series, I want to encourage you to bring your hopes, bring your dreams, bring your questions, bring your needs, bring your joys, and and just sit at the feet of Jesus like the disciples did and listen. But I also want to warn you, that these words that have have challenged and encouraged people and really have have shaped human history for the last 2,000 years, they will encourage you, but they will also challenge you. Like, I'm excited about this series, mostly. But I'm honestly like a little bit nervous about this series as well, because for me, when I read through the Sermon on the Mount, there are some parts that I get to, and I'm like, yes, God, that is what I want. Help me live that way more and more today. And then there's some parts, and I'm like, whoa, Jesus, you need to back it up, okay? (laughs) Like, you are, that's just making me uncomfortable. Like, you're challenging some of the deep-seated beliefs I have. Some of the things that I'm building my identity on, you're whittling away at that, and that scares me, and I don't want you to do that. And see, Jesus has something to give every single one of us. He wants to invite us to the full free life that only he can give us. But you are absolutely deceiving yourselves if you think you can get there without letting Jesus come in and do some really major renovation in your heart and your identity and the truths that you tell yourself and the way that you built yourself up over the years. It's just how it's going to be. But again, Bartimaeus, he came to Jesus for the same reason that the crowds did. He knew that Jesus had something to offer him. And I believe with all of my heart that Jesus has something to offer each of us today as well, if we just listen. So my encouragement to you is is that during this series, you would make a commitment to listen first. This is a very familiar text for a lot of us. We know what it says. If you've been in church, you've probably heard sermons about this before, but I would encourage you to come with the heart of a student, which is what the word disciple really means. It means a learner, right? And just say, Jesus, what, what do you have to say to me today? And I want to encourage you when you do that to come with, really with an expectation that God is here and that he has something to say to you and that he can show up in your life in the very same powerful way that he showed up in Bartimaeus' life. Do you all believe that? I mean, really think about it. Like, the, the living God is present to us, with us, through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we gather together, we're not just here. Kind of, it's not like our words just bounce off the ceiling. Like, the living God is here. And he has something for you. So it's, it is appropriate in this series, it's appropriate at the start of the year to expect that Jesus is going to move in you, that he's going to do a work in you and through you. It may not look like what you think it's going to, but he's here and he can work. So that question that he asks each one of us, what do you want me to do for you? You need to realize that that is not an empty question. That is not a question that comes from just some schmo on the street, right? Right? That is a question that is coming directly to you from the only one who can give sight back to the blind. It is a question that is going to you from the only person who changed all of human history through what they lived and taught. Like, that's the person asking the question to you today. What do you want me to do for you? Let's pray that as we enter into this series, uh, God would help us know how to answer that question. God, we are truly grateful. I, I am. I'm mostly excited about this series and where it's going. I'm a little terrified about some of the ongoing work you still want to do in my heart and my life. Um, but we're grateful, God, that, that that question that went out to Bartimaeus all those years ago, what, what do you want me to do for you? That that is still a heart that you have towards us, that you are here, that through the power of your living spirit, you are here. God, if nothing else, would we walk away today with a deeper sense of expectation that we serve a risen God, that you are living, that you are here, that you love us, that you have good things for us, and that you want to do that work in our lives. Now, it may not look exactly the way we imagine it could. It might be a little more painful and awkward and stretching and growing along the way. But we trust, Lord, that you know what's best. And we trust that you have the power to bring about your best in our lives. So would you just help us know what it looks like to honestly answer the question what do you want me to do for you and would you help us bring that question to you today and every day with a sense of trust that you love us that you're here and that in your power you can answer our deepest questions in the way that is truly best for us we invite you to do that and we trust you with results